Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Haggerty says his two handlers would send him a couple times a year, away and buy a gun off Billy Bell. Leave it somewhere. Tell them where you left it. They get the police to go and pick it up and go, oh my God, look how great we are. We've took these weapons off the street. They get the authorised to pay a big bonus to their informer and they split it three ways between them. So a couple of times a year, the rep said to him, he claims, I went back on off Billy Bell and we'll find it. I'm Nicola Talent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Supergrass Gary Haggerty admitted to five murders, another five attempted murders, and more than 200 terror offences during his time as an Ulster Volunteer Force boss and before he became a state witness in Northern Ireland. So how do we take the evidence of a career tout and a murderer who denied being a serial killer when he stood to give evidence at a murder trial in Belfast in recent weeks? Can he be both a serious criminal and a truthful witness? Is the case of the tragic murders of Catholic workmen Gary Connie and Eamon Fox the last time we will see Haggerty give evidence? And is this the last of the Supergrass trials? Today, I'm talking with Belfast Telegraph crime correspondent Alison Morris about the witness, about the murder of innocence and about the dark times of the past. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I'm catching up with you after you've had a frantic month uh, holidaying and also in the middle of it, dipping in to uh, evidence of a supergrass called Gary Haggerty, which was a fascinating story that came out of the North and a trial uh, for the murders of, or into the murders of Gary, Connie and Eamon Fox, which were, who were killed in 1994. But Gary Haggerty, just give me a little bit of background, who he is. Now, I know we can't describe him physically or anything from, but who, who is he and how did he come to be in the witness box there in, in Belfast? Yeah, so just as you just pointed out, about a week before he was due to give evidence, we were told by the, the court service and the Lord Chief Justice Office that we couldn't 
Lady Chief Justice Office, I should say, that we couldn't um, describe him. They said there should be no court illustrators. We don't really have those here anyway, but that we couldn't describe what he looked like now. And that is because he's been in witness protection since about 2010. Um, Gary Haggerty was a senior member of the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, based around the Mount Vernon Tigers Bay area. They were a notorious unit of the UVF in that they targeted dozens of Catholics in sectarian attacks, but none of those Catholics were senior Republicans. They weren't IRA men. They were just random sectarian, easy targets. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to that, I suppose, I suppose shortly. But the organisation was also riddled with informers, people who were working for Special Branch, and that included their most senior member, described in court as a military commander, a guy called Mark Haddock, who I have also seen sitting in court during a previous Supergrass trial, um, Gary Haggerty, and then people who were also mentioned in court, people like Roy Stewart, Ronald Bow. Um, there was a lot of people who had, you know, those sort of... Uh, Nicknames that you would attach to a lot of a lot of the people who were there, but the whole unit was then under investigation by the police ombudsman, Nulo Loan, the previous ombudsman. She did a report called Operation Ballast. That was after a complaint by Raymond McCord Sr., whose son, Raymond McCord Jr., had been murdered by the UVF, very violently murdered. Um, and it uncovered a, a sort of web of people who were working for a special branch at that time and who were being allowed to murder with impunity. Um, Gary Haggerty was one of those. And mm. you would expect then that he would be prosecuted. Instead, he was recruited under the SACPA legislation, which I believe came into force in 2005. Some you know legal personal probably messages and tell us I'm a year out or whatever, but I think it was 2005. It's a Serious Organised Crime and Police Act. That was intended for use for, you know, um, financial crimes in, in England, that sort of thing. It wasn't intended for use for the legacy of Northern Ireland's troubles. But somebody somewhere clearly thought, let's use this legislation for that. And so began what we would have called the Supergrass Trials of Old, which all nearly collapsed on appeal. We had one, which was the Stuart Brothers trial into the murder of a UDA man near, named Tommy English, which took place during a loyalist feud. Mm. That resulted in no one um, being prosecuted on the foot of their evidence because they were considered such poor witnesses, at which point the Public Prosecution Service said there would be no more Supergrass trials. Um, and that included a guy called Neil Hyde, who'd already been given um, a SACPA order to be given a reduced sentence, who admitted involvement in the murder of one of your colleagues, Martin O'Hagan, who was murdered, somebody were a journalist, murdered by the LVF. So we did think we'd seen the end of these trials, but then we were told that this case which is a guy called Jimmy Smith, whose nickname was Jimmy Shades, that this would go ahead for the double murder of these two Catholic workmen because there was other corroborating evidence. So Gary Haggerty's evidence in this as a supergrass was the main prosecution um, evidence, but there was also other evidence, which was DNA evidence, which was contained on a coat that was used by the workmen, so uh, used by the gunmen who killed the workmen. So I would say I didn't think I was going to be sitting through another Supergrass trial. I would say with some confidence that this is the last one that I will ever report on in Northern Ireland. We now have new legacy legislation that could come into force next year. But the whole controversial issue of using assistant offenders, and I know that you've had this and you're working in the South, assistant offenders by their very nature are criminals, criminals of a very serious nature because they have to be to have the information that the prosecution require. And they often minimise their role in events and they increase the role of people who they have since had fallouts with. 
And Gary Haggerty is the man who admitted involvement directly or as part of the planning in five murders. He admitted involvement in five attempted murders. And of that, he admitted 202 crimes, very serious crimes, linked to his 16-year career in the UVF and about 300 other crimes, including the target and a very serious senior figures, was taken into consideration. And for that, he received a much reduced sentence. He did some time in prison. He was then released. He was sent to witness protection. And the first time that we laid eyes on him was last Monday when he arrived at Court 12 at Belfast Crown Court, accompanied by a very uh, scurry-looking personal protection officer, and he set to give his his evidence um, against his former associate, Jimmy Smith. And also, as was reported at the time, about a dozen of Jimmy Smith's supporters who sat in the public gallery, just feet from the families of the victims of the two workmen, the two workmen's son, one of their ex-partners, the sisters of one of the, the dead men, and just feed for them with these supporters, which, you know, I've seen that before in, in the past. We always said those sort of stro- shows of strength, paramilitary yeah. figures, they show up with all these supporters. But at least six of them sat for the first three hours of, of Haggerty's evidence wearing masks and hats with their faces covered. One, you know, I mm. did joke because one had his face covered with a sort of snood up to his nose and then a baseball pat- cap pulled over his eyes. The other one had a scarf up over his face and had a Union Jack bobble hat pulled down so you could just see his eyes. And then one of them had sunglasses on. So, I mean, you had this, two of them looked like they were, you know, about to scale Everest or, you know, climb a mountain in, in you know, Arctic conditions. And the other one looked like he was on his holidays. But they sat there in full view of the police who had a very heavy police presence in the court until that afternoon. It was very strange, very strange court hearing. And I want to come back to that, but when you talk about Gary Haggerty having admitted all those crimes, five murders, five attempted murders, 200 plus terror offences, I mean, you know, that's a, a, a legacy he left of absolute fear and devastation for so many people and families. But that's where we differ because in the North you have what you said was that legislation was brought in, you think around 2005, uh, our witness protection programme isn't, um, you know, engulfed in any legislation. It's sort of run on a vaguely haphazard basis. And as a result, our witnesses don't have to fess up to what they've done. Uh, therefore, you had uh, Jonathan Dowdall previously charged with murder at the Regency Hotel, being able to give evidence and to um, pretty much, you know, define himself as a victim um, himself, you know, of the the Hutch gang is what he he pretty much said in the in the witness box. But it's interesting because the process for Gary Haggerty to have become a state witness, a supergrass, is quite a robust one in the north. Um, so he's been run as an informer, and then he comes in to, you know, to go on the books to give evidence against former colleagues what he knows. But to do, in order to do so and for that agreement, really, of that witness protection, that he gets the protection, uh, he has to basically admit everything he's done. Or that is the where the legislation, that's what the legislation details. Yeah, and on some occasions, in those two other occasions, which I mentioned, the Stuart brothers and Neil Hyde, there was arguments they hadn't confessed everything they'd done. And so the, the agreement that they'd signed should be null and void. In Haggerty's case, because of what happened previously and the controversy around it, can you imagine that previous Supergrass trial cost the prosecution service 11.5 million 
resulted in you know no prosecutions based on their evidence. The judge calling them untruthful witnesses. So this, I think there was a lot tighter restrictions around this. And from what I know, Gary Haggerty was debriefed or interviewed about his previous activity and the activity of his associates 1,149 times. They were done on secure locations, I think other police stations or army bases somewhere in England um, during his custody and also during when, when he was released from prison to ensure what they call is the truthfulness of the witness, you know, Will that stand up to scrutiny? Um, there's the motivation by why anyone becomes an assistant offender. The motivation's clear. You get a drastically reduced sentence. In Haggerty's case, there was you know a serious motivation there because while the Good Friday Agreement meant that anyone here who was convicted of an offence that took place before 1998, even if it was a murder, they'll only serve two years in prison. So, you know, for Haggerty, that would have been easy enough. You know, this is a man who was a paramilitary for a long time. He would have expected at some stage in his life to serve that in prison. But many of the crimes of which that branch of the UVF were involved in took place after 1998, which would have resulted in significant sentences, 20, 25-year sentences. Um, and that's obviously something that people are less keen on doing. And that would, would have been one thing that motivated him. He'd been stood down as a special branch informer before he was taken on as a uh, as, as an assistant offender. That happened, I think, sometime around the time when um, Sir Hugh Ord was the chief constable. And after Operation, you know, the Operation uh, Ballast Police Ombudsman report and the fact that it was clear what these people had been up to, despite the fact that they were being paid by the state. Um, and then he became, as I said, an assistant offender. But some of the evidence he gave during those debrief interviews was remarkable. I mean, a lot of it came out in court, not all of it came out in court, but it was, you know, it gave an insight into how this place was being operated in those sort of 90, late 1980s, early 1990s period. You know, I remember saying to one of my, my journalist colleagues at it, if anyone ever says Good Friday Agreement was a failure, they should be made to read the court reports from this time because it was horrific what was being allowed to happen, what they were doing, what the police, well, he claims, alleged that his special branch handlers knew of. One of the the things that he had told police during his, told the, the authorities during his debrief was that his two special branch handlers, who he was not allowed to name in court. Now, can I say that at one stage, there were over a dozen people, including the two special branch handlers, who had filed sent to the PPS, who could have faced trial with Gary Haggerty being the supergrass given evidence. But because there was no corroboration... Trial for PPS, what, Alison? Choose trial for... They would have been done for malfeasance in public office and they could have also been done for... When I tell you some of the allegations he made against them, you could have been done for a litany of crimes despite the fact they were two serving RUC officers at the time. But as because there has to be corroboration and there wasn't in any of those in 2017... The PPS said there'll be no more. None of these people are going to be charged. And the only person he was going to be charged was Jimmy Smith and another guy called Mark Gutsy Campbell. He actually died of drug overdose before this case ever came to trial. So in the end, we only had one person sitting in the dock, one person in the witness box. But the allegations he made against his handlers, who it's clear he has animosity towards, were just bizarre. At one stage during his interviews, during his debriefs, he said there was a guy called Billy Bell. Yeah, I know because I reported on this. Billy Bell is a sort of strange character. He lived in North Belfast. He was a gun enthusiast, a gun fanatic. And he could take deactivated weapons, which can be bought really easily and quite cheaply online, 
and reactivate them and turn them into working weapons. And he was working as a sort of freelance drugs uh, arms dealer, mm. um, selling arms to both, you know, the UDA, the UVF, the LVF, all of those largest paramilitary groups um, during the during the troubles, during the conflict. After that, he actually opened like a paintballing like place where people used to come. He had like a a, a military style vehicle. He used to wear camouflage clothing. Um, but he took his own life. He shot himself. And when the police went to investigate it, they found over 70 weapons in his house, thousands of rounds of ammunition. Um, but it would seem that despite the fact that we were told that was the first time police became aware of this person, that he had actually been doing this for years and given guns to you know, senior informers. So police would have been aware of his activity. Haggerty says his two handlers would say to him a couple of times a year, I went and buy a gun off Billy Bell for 100 quid. Leave it somewhere. Tell them where you left it. They get the police to go and pick it up and go, oh my God, look how great we are. We've took these weapons off the street. They get the authorised to pay a big bonus to their informer. And they split it three ways between them. And he claims they did this around the 12th of July, which would obviously be a big time for loyalists. Need a few extra few quid around then. Um, and sometime around Remembrance, Sunday or Christmas. So a couple of times a year, the event said to him, he claims, I went back on off Billy Bell and we'll find it. I've you know, heard look like you're doing a great job. I've heard exactly similar stories down here, by the way. Of course, very difficult to prove ever. And sometimes if you start scratching near them, I think the state almost protects its secrets, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the I mean, there was a degree of that took place during this, the three days of Haggerty's evidence because he wanted to, to, to name, he named all his, all his former associates, you know, he was naming people left, right, centre, uh, but he was told to call his handlers, handler A and handler B, at which point he did say to the judge, you know, I, I don't think this is right. I'm being asked to name people who had no involvement in any of this while protecting the identities of two people who were very involved. And mm. by that, he meant his handlers because he claims he was telling them everything that mm -hmm. he was doing. Now, obviously, the prosecution and the defence had the notes that those handlers would have put through at that time. But Operation Ballast said handlers were not keeping um, proper notes Special branch were renowned for not keeping proper notes or destroying notes. Um, he claims he was telling them things and they weren't writing them down or they were writing down something different to protect another informer. Mm. Um, and in a lot of cases, that would have been Mark Haddock. Um, there was a few sort of, I suppose, other strange moments during his evidence. There was at one case the court has to rise to allow a matter to be checked. And it just seemed to coincide with the same time that his... Um, personal protection officer had just left quite quickly to get a note to go to the toilet, whatever it was he was doing. And so he was left sitting in the, the witness box looking very nervous, let's just imagine. say. I mean, at that point, I was standing less than a few feet away from him and I was tempted to speak to him. Yeah. Then I thought, I'll be accused of collapsing a million pound trial or something, you know, by the, the defence if I start talking to him. Um, but Jimmy Shades, who was sitting looking very unconcerned by the whole thing in the... um. The witness box started like laughing out loud at his <laughs> discomfort, and you could see he was clearly discomfort um, and a dis extreme discomfort of being left um, when not given evidence. Apart from that, he seemed very confident of himself. And what I did notice is the difference between him and maybe previous cases where someone who was connected was given evidence is they get very defensive if you say anything to them. Like, you know, he the the um the defense barrister was saying to him, you know, you're you're a violent man, you're a thug, you know, you're and he was just going, Yeah, that's correct. I'd, I'd agree mm. with that, yeah, I can be. 
yeah. that can be the case. And he was just agreeing that he was a very violent well, man. Not... He did he did deny being a serial killer. I was going to say, it does suppose there's much point in saying, no, I'm not having, you know, yeah. admitted your guilt well, to five murders yeah. and attempting five others. It wouldn't have well, been. Well, he, he did deny being a serial killer and then get into a very pedantic argument about what a serial killer is because he said, I only shot one person. He was only like in the assisting role and the rest of those other four murderers. So does that make me a serial killer? Mm. I don't know. I'm taking yeah. maybe get a criminal criminologist on to explain what, what the definition of serial killer is. What's going on? I suppose at the heart of that and what he was, you know, he he wanting to name his his handlers, his special branch handlers. And what's coming out a lot in the north, you know, with uh Freddie Scapatici and these other situations are that these informers are you know, independently it's been claimed, but also some of them are claiming that they were informing the police who was going to be shot. And the police sort of stood back and allowed these shootings happen, which is really a step beyond what we should accept when it comes to that. I mean, you know, you look at what happened in Boston with Whitey Bulger and all of that ultimately culminated in um, those FBI agents who were doing similar being outed and, you know, Whitey being convicted. Um, but it, it's not outside the realms of possibility that that was going on, but it's really uncomfortable, deeply uncomfortable. And maybe I'm saying this from down here, but the idea that the police force, the security services were sitting back closing their eyes and allowing people get murdered and get tortured and knowing that was going to happen, doing nothing about it because they were protecting the informants. Because, of course, if they stood in every step of the way, uh, the paranoia, there would have been pointing accusations of rats and the touts, their informants are no good when they're not working in the in the situation. But do you, that seems to be coming more and more into the narrative now. Is it that that's what was going on? Well, we've seen that in various places. reports where there has been either collusion or, as she describes, the collusive behaviours. In Haggerty's case, it was really interesting because what he was saying was, on some occasions, his handlers, first of all, he said, Jimmy Jimmy Smith was on the run for another murder at the time when these two workmen were killed. He had killed a guy called Cormac McDermott in Ballymena. He was later convicted of that. He was convicted of that and sentenced um, to life in prison. He had also shot his wife who um, jumped on him during the time and pulled his glasses off him. And the reason why he was convicted, and one of the reasons he was convicted in that case was, well, first of all, she she was able to give a good a description of what he looked like, but also his prescription for his glasses was really, really unusual. Um, he was the only person in Northern Ireland that had this specific prescription. Um, police were able to track that down. At one time, we were told that Haddock had decided he was going to go and set fire to the opticians where he had got his glasses in order to try and cover up, um, but was told that prescriptions are held on a, like a central system. You can't just burn down burn down the shop. But it's, it reminded me of, you know, Zoolander, where they're like the information, I mean, the files are in the computer and they're going to smash the computer. He thought he could get, whack on opticians and then get rid of all sorts of files. But the and the reason, obviously, why we can say this, even though there hasn't been a verdict in this case, is because all of these trials take place in a diplock court, in a non-jury court, just like your special criminal court. There is no jury to prejudice in this case. Mr. Justice O'Hara will consider um, the evidence and whether the burden of proof has been made by himself. Um, and he's he's no better man to do that. You know, he's a very senior judge. 
But yeah, the so he said, Haggerty says he continually sold his handlers because he had the mind, he was the, the welfare officer, the UVF put him in charge of minding Jimmy Smith. And he was being what he called a nuisance, basically. He was out drinking in bars, despite the fact he was meant to be on the run. On one occasion, apparently, um, he was singing Here, Here Lies a Soldier, which is a sort of UVF song, while walking up the road and all the neighbours were complaining. And he was just, you know, he was going like, I've told you where he is. He claims his handler said, just, just stay close to him. You know, if we were to go and lift him, it would, it would draw attention to you. You're too close to him. It would un- unmask you as an informer. He did say that he did give information that saved the lives of 19 Catholic workmen. There was a um, a murder of three, three UVF men on the Shankill. And after that, um, there was reprisal attacks. And one of the plans was to attack a, a bus that was bringing in Catholic workmen into Rathcool Estate, a loyalist estate in the outskirts of North Belfast. He said he gave information to his handlers. A checkpoint was put in place and the, that attack then was abandoned. Um, so you can see that there is a usefulness to that sort of covert human surveillance, if all this is accurate. But also then, and I thought this with the Freddie Skeptici case and every other case I've covered, who got to say who lived and died? Who got to say, we'll save this person? But if we'll go and see if that person, well, then we might unmask our informer. You know, you could pull your informer out. You could take them out of circulation. All of that, I thought, you know, that no human being, especially, you know, the rank of a special branch officer should be saying, have the power mm-hmm. of life and death in their hands. So we'll save this one, but not save, save that one. And, you know, some of the, the killings they were involved in. You know, such as Sharon McKenna, who was we call the Good Samaritan killing. She was going to the visit the house of an elderly Protestant man who she'd been helping. She stood the errands for him when she was shot by the the um, Mount Vernon UVF, who Haggerty and Haddock were members of. Um, Sean McParland was a, a grandfather who was just babysitting his grandchildren um, when they broke into the house and murdered him. Um, and ha- that's the the one killing that Haggerty admitted to he pulling the trigger on, that he was one of the gunmen in that case. The others he claimed to be in a, a supportive role. A guy called John Harbinson, who was kicked to death um, and what information was provided in that. And the thing about this is collusion is defined by um, Judge Corey, who was a Canadian judge, asked to look at years ago and asked to look at where there could be public inquiries in Northern Ireland. He defined collusion as not just not acting on information you had before killing, but not acting on information you had afterwards. You know, not arresting the perpetrators and putting them in jail with the information received afterwards. And Haggerty was claiming both of those things. He was given information beforehand. He said in relation to two Catholic workmen, he did not know until that morning what was going to happen, um, but that he had given information that there was going to be an attack. He had said that he went along with this other man to um, test fire a weapon and that that only happened prior to an attack um, so he'd give all of this information that it was you know um, that there was going to attack take place but he claims that until that morning when he wouldn't have had access to a phone um, to inform his handlers he didn't know but that at the first opportunity afterwards that he did. So like I wonder and I'm sure you were sitting in court and we're supposed to be very professional and just dealing with the job at hand. But I mean, you do start to daydream a little bit and wonder about these people. Like, how does Haggerty live with himself? I mean, all he did himself, um, you know, as part of that UVF unit, uh, the murders, you know, the terror offences. And 
on top of that, he then turns rat on all his sort of former colleagues, which is obviously he's been eyeballed by those uh, supporters in the uh, the masks and the hats to be reminded that, you know, he has committed a sin, which is sometimes in that peculiar world seen as worse, far worse than any of the other um, crimes he's he has admitted to. Like, how does a guy like that, and we can't talk about, we can't describe him, we can't whatever, but he's living out there somewhere in the wilderness, hidden away from from what he always once knew. Presumably on witness protection, he's not allowed to contact his family or former friends. He's isolated. Uh, how does he live with himself? And how did he come across to you as, uh, you know, is he a guy who believes he's making amends? He didn't look like a happy person, you know. I mean, I can't describe what he looked like, but he didn't look like a particularly well person. Um, he didn't look like someone who was living it up and living the high life in, in witness protection. Um, he did look like someone who was, you know, uncomfortable in his circumstances at times. He seemed to have, you know, in some ways come to terms with his own violent past. He wasn't trying to minimise that. But he was on occasions, you know, I felt you could hear that there was an anger that he felt that his current predicament, you know, if he's living a, a life that he didn't think that he was going to see out his days. And, you know, I don't know where to put people in witness protection, but I'm sure it's not somewhere um, overly opulent, but that. He blames other people on that. You know, he seemed to be a slightly bitter man, maybe. So, um, and that bitterness is focused on those yeah. handlers that he's trying to name. Yeah, more course. his handlers than his former associates, because I suppose he feels that he was equal to them, if you like. They were all doing the same things at the same time. You know, and you got a glimpse of just what a ruthless world it was. He claims that as he had to bring um, Jimmy Smith to the murder scene, where they'd cut a hole, basically an offence of a, a play park for him to go through and open fire on these two 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 workmen. There was actually three workmen. They were all electricians. There were sparks working on this site in a very loyalist area. Um, someone who worked on the site had given information to the UVF that there were Catholics working on the site. At the start, the UVF tried to claim they were Republicans, and this was somehow justified. But they later admitted they didn't even know the names of the people that killed. They were just Catholics um, sitting in a car eating their lunch at lunchtime, having worked on a building site. You know, one was a father of six, one was a father of one. They're just guys trying to earn a crust. Um, and he admitted in court to a pretty sectarian. But he did say just before Jimmy Smith went on, he shook his hand and wished him luck. Mm. You know, this was and that also that when he had finished the attack as he was running away, he raised either the gun or a fist in the air and shouted up the UVF, but then tripped up and scraped his knee. And when he met him a few days later, he was um, he was more upset that he, you know, scuffed his knee. And what he said was um, when he was asked um, and what did he say about the taxes? He was just, you know, sorry, he hadn't got the guy in the back, which was the fellow, the other workman who escaped in during the attack. He was sitting in the back. And then there was like a bizarre, and like if, you know, I always say, and I know I said, if I lived to be a hundred, I thought I've never heard anything like this in my life. A guy called James Marsden, who they claim was ex-military, was providing the safe house, if you like, that was to be used in this attack. It was right beside the play park, within walking distance. They were meant to, they met there to discuss it that morning, including Gutsy Campbell, who was going to take um, Jimmy Smith allegedly away from the scene after the attack. And when they went into his house, he was also minding the weapon. When they went into his house, Haggerty said his house. He had drawn chalk outlines all around the floors as if there were dead bodies in the house. And then holes in the walls that he had put marks around and drew numbers beside and made his entire house look like a crime scene. For like decoration? Yeah. 
And he said it was like being in an asylum. And in one of the sort of statements, say these other guys arrived from Ralph Cool, who are like a different unit of the UVF. They're meant to help to be the sort of getaway drivers, if you like. They walk in and in a statement says one of them basically said, should we be trusting this guy with a gun, let alone like, what is this? You know, this is mental. But, you know, somewhere sitting at that time in 1994 in, you know, Tigers Bay, there was a guy who had decorated his house with dead bodies and chalk outlines to look like a crime scene. Mm. And he was involved in the murders. I did now involved in the, the murders of these two Catholic workmen. And that in itself, I thought, like, if you watch that in some sort of crime drama, you'd go... It's a bit far-fetched, yeah, you know. Absolutely. I mean, but, it, like a kind of a wallpaper design almost that he was trying to establish for himself. But isn't it funny that, you know, there's different standards even within that lunacy and the violence of that UVF group. There's some looking down their noses on the madness of others. And yet, you know, outside that group, we're looking at the whole lot of them going, yeah. animals, you know. So did did he make your lip curl? Gary Haggerty. And I'm sure despite the fact that, you you know, these Supergrass trials are no more, um, you know, perhaps this went ahead because the Connie and Fox families pushed enough for it or whatever. But uh, like, did you, or were you much more professional than I would be? Did you just look at him and go, oh. I think that whenever it comes to those sort of things, and I've covered so many of them, as I'm sure you have over the years, I think that people who don't work in our world or live in our world or, you know, reported on that or, or worked in it, they probably think of people like that, you know, who have murdered five people, who have admitted to trying to murder five other people, and they think of them, you know, like some sort of, you know, TV drama monster. They always end up very ordinary and inadequate looking men. Mm. Do you know what I mean? There's mm. there's never anything that remarkable about them in real life. Um, they're always sort of a bit sad, actually. Do you know what I mean? A bit night. Yeah. I did feel, really feel for the families of the the two victims. So you had to sit and listen to this, you know, and listen to the fact that people were boasting, you know, and, you know, high-fiving each other and good luck with that, mate. You know, while they're talking about the murders of their loved ones, you know, two complete family men just earned out, out, out a living. I thought for them it was harder. And obviously on the first day when mass men were allowed to sit beside him, I thought that was fairly disgraceful. Disgusting. Way to treat any victims in the, the justice system. You know, they'd already had waited you know, well over a decade for this to even come to court, been let down on numerous occasions, you know, things were put back, there was talk it wasn't going to go ahead, it was going to go ahead, um, and, you know, and they stuck with it the whole way through. I do feel sorry for them, and whatever the outcome of it is, as I said, that if Jimmy Smith is convicted, he'll only do two years in prison, he could appeal that, and that could get him back out on bail again until the time when that appeal is heard, and it is very likely that if the... um the legacy legislation passes, the High Court challenges that will be in place by then. And at that point, the Sentencing Act gets set to zero. So nobody convicted will do any time in prison whatsoever. And that in itself, I think, is, you know, hard for people to just, I think, to cope with. The fact that, you know, someone can be convicted of murder and never do a day in prison. It's it's very difficult for them. And I do, because the, the heart is still really there. And they're lovely people. And, the, you know, they're they're being as pleasant as anything with everyone all around them, you know, whether it be the court clerks, the you know, the media, everyone. They were just very, you know, mm. decent, 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 you know, dignified people. But they were in a, put in a terrible position. And there were some days we're writing stuff down and you're writing it down because that's going to be, you know, the top line of that story of that day. But that's their families, you know, yeah. that's, that's their loved ones. And Gary Haggerty, like, how is a person like that created? 
or can we even begin to understand that when we're, you know, such a, a distance from the time that he chose um, or was he groomed into that life of a, a UVF terror boss? Well, he was a very willing, I think, a willing participant in the UVF. It is a very different time. And we're we're having court cases that are taking place in the here and now that are discussing events that took place, you know, quite some time ago. For me, the 1990s doesn't sound that long ago because I'm <laughs> fucking getting ancient now. But like it was for someone in their 20s, the 1990s sounds, you know, like, you know, the yeah. old days. But, you know, the, the the thing is that we're trying to, I suppose we're judging past events by modern standards, which they weren't. And, you know, that's when I when I said it to you about, you know, if anyone ever says the Good Friday Agreement doesn't work and they should sit through that. It was just a horrible reminder and a horrible glimpse at just what a terribly, terribly violent, awful, shocking world that we were living in and how, you know, thank every day for the people who made that peace process happen, because I certainly wouldn't want my children to be living through that. But it was horrendous and life was so cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, people were targeted so easily. And, you know, the, the cost of their life was cheap. And, you know, what these people were doing is they were carrying out these murders and then they were going to a band hall, which is like a shabine, you know, like an illegal, illegal drinking club. And they were all going on the piss. If they got arrested, they were doing a couple of days, um, two or three days in, in Castlereagh being questioned. They were getting back out again. They were saying they had to go to the Grove Tavern, which was a bar that doesn't exist anymore for their debrief. So someone from the UVF would come in to find out what they'd said or what they hadn't said. Um, and then they used to go to another UVF bar where money was left behind the bar for just that occasion. So anyone who had killed someone or murdered someone, they got out of you know custody, they went there and there was money left behind the bar for them to have a drink as some sort of celebration. And like when you think about, you know, someone then, a widow, left with a wee baby, you know, in the very early days of a relationship, a mother with six children, left to try and raise six children. And the guy who was, you know, your husband, your the father, the breadwinner who's yeah. sitting on a built-in side earning money is gone mm-hmm. and they're going out to have a, a celebratory drink, you know, at the end of it. It was just horrendous because I probably lived through that time thinking that most of that is abnormal. You grew up and if you grew up where I grew up, you think the abnormal is normal. You just mm-hmm. do. You just believe that things are just, the, that's just the way they are. Your reality is what it is. But now as an adult and someone who we've had so much space, we've had those 25 years, looking back at it, you think, my goodness, we were just... And people were being failed by every state of, you know, every arm of the state were failing people. Mm. They weren't protecting them. They weren't locking these guys up. They were being paid money, especially ranch informers. Um, and now, you know, they may all be turning on each other now, but at the same time, what what use is that to the, I suppose, the families? It's never going to bring their loved ones back. But, you know, if we want to preserve something, which is, is what that, that case did, all of that is now preserved in evidence. It's been offered in evidence and, and it'll be there forever. You know, it can't escape and future generations can read back and look back and just see what an absolute shambles this place was. Mm, no, it's, I mean, I think the image of them eating their sandwiches in the back of a van, you know, the builders and, uh, you know, the evidence that was given by Haggerty that they were killed simply because they were Catholics and no other reason is, you know, a dark time that it is, um, Important to remember in one way, but uh, at least it's becoming alien, that whole yeah. scenario to us. Um, I suppose finally, the super grasses. Why do you say the super grasses, they're ended, they're, they're ne- this is the end of it. We're never going to see anymore. Presumably you're, you're talking about from that era and you will have state witnesses going forward in organised crime cases, etc. 
that's not the legislation just didn't work in that form in Northern Ireland. It just doesn't work like that. We do still, it's still very difficult to get people to come forward and give evidence in paramilitary trials because no one wants to have to leave their family or move house or do any of that. That Those big multi-million pound supergrass trials will never happen. And just to give you, I suppose, an example of how much that, that this cost, and we won't know the cost of this for quite some time, but remember, he was being flown sometimes by helicopter back and forward from prison to be debriefed. And for this trial, Gary Haggerty, as you'd read on Nelson Morris exclusive, was flown to Belfast to give evidence in the plea and used by Rishi Sunak, used by the British Prime Minister. The private he was jet. flown on a private jet. Unbelievable. Yeah, and he gave evidence and then like the people who had decided he was going to be a good witness then said that he, was un- he wasn't believable. Well, they had to expl- uh, they had to disclose this document to the defence, which said that they were worried that he was motivated by revenge. I think most supergrasses are motivated by revenge or anger against someone. Mm. Um, but the, the the question will be, what was his motivation? Because your motivation is one thing. Is your motivation might make you turn on someone, but what you're saying about them is it true? Is it false? That's what the judge has to has to work out. He has to work out is. The corroborating evidence, which was Jimmy Smith's DNA on a jacket used by the, the killer, by the gunman, um, and the evidence given by Mark Haddock or by Gary Haggerty, was that evidence, did that evidence tie up, did it sound truthful, did he believe the witness? So in the case of Justice Gillen in the Stuart Brothers trial, the murder of Tommy Glacier went, no, I don't believe him, I don't believe a word they've said, they're two liars. In this case, did the judge believe him? And it was very hard for me to gauge whether or not he would be. He wasn't a terrible witness by any amount. He didn't change his mind. He didn't change his story. He kept to the one story. But the fact is that this is a, you know, a very violent man with a violent past who was used to covering up his past deeds and not trying to get apprehended for them. Um, does the judge believe him? And that will be for, for Justice O'Hara to, to decide. And we'll, um, we'll find that out. But in the wheels here work slowly. I wouldn't be expecting to find it out in the next couple of weeks. You know, it's a decision that I imagine he'll want to go away and study all that evidence again and very carefully take that decision because a lot rides on it. But no, I don't think that that, that legislation will be used for that purpose ever again. Mm. We're going to have new legacy legislation no matter what the High Court rules. The High Court challenges that legacy bill might say it's not compatible with this and this and this in human rights and then it'll just be modified and changed to that. But we will going forward have something else we don't know what it's going to be yet mm. but those kind of big trials um i would say you know and in, in my career that's the last one i i'll sit through yeah well i'm sure you're glad you didn't miss it no i mean it was it was fascinating to see, and it was also you know i mean people say they don't believe that something's actually happening the, the sort of mass men outside the court were used to that i mean i'm sure you used to say that outside court Criminals and their supporters do not want to be photographed outside court. They all cover their faces. They put their hoods up, they cover heads. But that's the escape bus. They don't do it once they get into the body of the court. I've never seen someone sitting with a mask on in the, the public gallery of the courts. So that was a new one for me. No, that was shocking. And it was very, there were very sinister images, I have to say, that we saw on the television of that. Um, well, look, Alison Morris, thank you very much. Not at all. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.
Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.